Our second reading this morning is a portion of the parable of the lost sons, um, the prodigal son as it's sometimes known. Um, listen for God's word to you. So he, the prodigal, returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older, bro- the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been um, we've been looking at the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, the last couple of weeks. We began on Pentecost um, and uh, then fa- continued Father's Day, and today we're going to to conclude our series. And the reason for this is that Trinity Sunday fell on Father's Day. And I was thinking to myself, the Trinity is actually a pretty big topic. I don't know if you can really uh, do it justice on one week. I don't know if you could do it justice on 52 weeks. Uh, but I thought, you know, because of the timing and everything, it worked out nicely. So I thought, well, why don't we spend three weeks? And so we, we looked at uh, the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, and we saw that the, the Holy Spirit is the bringer of unity, that, that what the Holy Spirit does is to bring unity and to enable people people to connect the, in, in the same way that, that uh, God is connected or, or relates to one, one, one another, one, one, the different persons of the Godhead relate to one another, that the Holy Spirit empowers that same kind of unity here on earth among people. So we saw that. And um, then last week we, we talked about God the Father and the idea that God is a loving Father, which was an idea Jesus was very comfortable with, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And what we saw last week is that because Jesus has reconnected us to God, we don't have to fear anything on earth or in heaven. And because of that, we can, we can face the sufferings of life knowing that God permits them because because as, as Paul taught, taught us last week, that suffering leads to endurance, and endurance actually strengthens our hope in the goodness of God. So, so that's what we've been looking at so far. And today we're going to look at the relationship of uh, God the Son to Jesus Christ. Because we talk a lot about Jesus, but, but we don't usually stop and say God the Son. Usually we, we include God the Son in the list, you know, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to talk about what is the relationship of God the Son to God the, the, uh, to, to Jesus Christ. 
And so that's that's where we're going to finish this up today. And um, uh, that that's that is also probably a 52 week sermon series. So we're not going to get very far, but but we're gonna we're gonna at least hopefully touch on some facets of it that that have some applicability in our own lives. So that's what we're going to look at today. But but the the first question is really what is the relationship between God the Son and Jesus Christ? And the answer is complicated uh, because. God the the Son has always been since eternity past and always always into eternity future uh, is always the Son of God the Father, but Jesus Christ is God the Son incarnate on earth, and that began at a fixed point in time. That began two thousand years ago, and so God has changed in some important sense. God has changed, and that's something that is unnerving. Because we don't want a God who changes. Uh, you know, it may feel like, you know, you want a God who relents or something like that, but you really don't want a God who is changeable because, because what can you trust? You need, you need bedrock. You need a rock that you can cling to in the hard times. And if God is malleable, if God is, is whimsical, then that's a bad thing. And so, so we have to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean that God changed? Can God change? Will God change? What does the changeability of God the Son Tell us about God. And that's the issue that the writer of Hebrews is grappling with. Because this was an equally big issue in the first century. People said, why should I lead my, lean my life against a God who changes? Especially, you know, at risk of my life where I may be, you know, thrown before the lions. Um, if I trust this God, how do I know he's not going to change? So that was the question that the writer of Hebrews is dealing with in this section. And um, the the problem with Hebrews, Hebrews is probably, they tell us, not a letter. Sometimes it'll say in your Bible, it'll say the letter to the Hebrews. But it probably wasn't a letter, it was probably a sermon. So if you think mine are too long, imagine 13 chapters. So um, I'm not, uh, other other than brevity, I, I wouldn't say my sermons are better than Hebrews in any way, but, um, but I am shorter. Um, so... Uh, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a section of it, and um, I have necessarily taken it out of context. I hope I haven't ripped it out of context, but um, I encourage you, go ahead and take a look at chapter 2, or even the whole book of Hebrews. It's not that long of a book, um, because it, it, is, it repays some, some study. Uh, but uh, we're going to look at uh, beginning in, in the middle of a verse, so that's kind of your tip-off that, that, um, that we're taking it out of context to some degree. So we're going to pick up in the middle of a verse where... Um, uh, the the people who versified this disagree with me. So in the 1500s, when they added the verse numbers, um, they disagree with me on where this verse should be. So I'm starting in the middle of verse B, um, uh, where the writer says, Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. So he's beginning already to answer the question, uh, do we, do we have to worry about a God who changes? He says, he says, God did what he did, and we're going to talk about that. What God did, he did by grace. This was something God decided. It was not imposed on him. It was not that somebody came along and said, said, I'm going to force you to do something. God didn't have to give in to somebody who, who forced him. And God didn't even have to to uh, go along with something based on his own sense of morality or fair play or anything. God elected to do this freely. He was he was at liberty to do whatever he wanted, and what God decided to do was the grace of um, Jesus tasting death. So uh, what does that mean? For us, tasting means 
to like, you know, you're afraid it's not going to taste good, so you nibble on it. Uh, in the first century, it meant almost exactly the opposite. Instead of tasting, it meant like, like a food taster, a wine taster, somebody who, who sloshes it around in their palate and gets the whole experience and then can tell you about the texture and the, the overtones and things like that. He's saying, he's saying Jesus savored death in the full. Jesus experienced death completely in, in all of its totality. So he says, this was, this was the grace of God working. And he says, so Jesus tasted death. So why did he do that? Well, he says this. He says, he says it was for us. God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory. He did it to save us, to save you, to save me, to save everybody, uh, everybody who's ever been in a relationship with God, uh, was done so because of, because of God's gracious determination to do so. He said that God decided to bring many children into glory. So what is glory? Glory is more than just being saved. It's not a question of did I rescue it from destruction. It's a question of did I restore it to my original purpose. The original purposes of God in the time of man's innocence. What was God's desire? That glory is what we're being restored to through Christ. So he says glory, but not just not just as as creatures and not just as as disobedient rebels but as children that it was God's will not only to restore us into glory but to restore us as children so he says he says because of this it was only fitting it was only right that he should make Jesus through his suffering the perfect leader fit to bring them into their salvation so the first answer to the question why did Jesus do this. Why did God the Son become incarnate as Jesus Christ? Why did he do this? And he says it was fitting. One of the reasons, the first of two reasons, is so that he could be one of us. Why does he want to be one of us? So that we can have a leader. What he's saying is that God does not simply pick us up, save us from destruction, and set us down over here. He says God provides a means where we can follow a leader voluntarily out of destruction. So that, so that we have a leader. Jesus Christ is the perfect leader, um, who can bring us to, um, into our salvation. So there's a cooperative aspect that, that, uh, we need the leader. We cannot save ourselves. But that then we have the opportunity to, to assent to it. And he goes on. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy, that's us, have the same Father. He says, because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus became one of us, now we have the same Father that Jesus has. So he's connected us to God in that relationship. And he says, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. This is not something that we're imposing. You know, Jesus is not embarrassed. It's, you, you may have relatives where you just assume they didn't introduce themselves at some functions. He says, Jesus does not look at us in that same light. He says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, and he, he, uh, the writer of Hebrews references a, a passage in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, he says that the God the Son, the Word of God, is spoken through the prophets. And so when Isaiah spoke these words, it was actually God the Son, Jesus, speaking to us through the prophet. He says, He said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. And just as an aside, uh, the, the word proclaim means I will speak it, and the word praise means I will sing it. So this is one of two places in Scripture where Jesus is described as singing. So if you're not much of a singer, 
then uh, as you are being conformed to Christ, I hope that you become more of a singer because he's a singer. So he says, Jesus is not ashamed of us. And he says, I will proclaim you to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people in the assembly of God's people, the the, the worshiping um, uh, gatherings of, of the people of God. And he said, I will put my trust in him. And the, the word I hear, some translations get at this better than, than ours does today. But if you look at a number of translations, what you see is that the word I hear is emphatic. He's saying, even me, even even me, I, I will praise him. Uh, because because he's saying he says I will put my trust in him even I will trust in him God the Son had no need to trust God the Father because they existed in whatever that's like up in eternity and I can't even imagine what the internal relationships of the Trinity are but he said by becoming human Jesus became like us even to the point of saying I don't know I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow I I'm like you I have to trust God. In this, he says, I will put my trust in him. And then he goes on, he says, I and the children, the, the people that are now related to me, um, as siblings, the other children that God has given me. So Jesus says, says that he has, he has, um, the, the first reason is that Jesus has identified with us. Uh, I'm not playing, I'm not staying up to date. There we go. So Jesus has identified with us. So that, so, um, the, the first reason that Jesus became, or that, that God the Son became incarnate was so that he could identify with us. Um, and he did so through suffering. And he means, by suffering, he means, uh, certainly the things that Jesus, in, uh, in, experienced on the cross, but he means just the reality of, of not being God. That that's suffering, you know, not knowing where your next meal is coming from, being hungry, being thirsty, being hot when it's hot, being cold when it's cold. That's suffering compared to whatever glory is like in, in, in eternity. That Jesus became one of us through, and, and by suffering became fit to lead us. And then he gives a second reason. He says, because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. Why was that? For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. So what he's saying here is not that, not that the devil has some kind of authority that God has not given him. What he's saying is that uh, Jesus said the devil was a murderer from of old. That, that the one thing the devil is, is good at is murdering. Lying and murdering. And so, so he's saying that in that sense, the, the devil had the power of death. When we are afraid of death, when we refuse to do the things that, that we know we should, because we think, well, my life's too short, I can't waste it on those things, or when we say, frankly, I'm gonna get killed if I do that. That if I get involved in this thing that I ought to, then, you know, the death squads will come for me or whatever. That when we chicken out, when, when we act in fear of death, that we are slaves to the power of the devil. So he says, only in this way could Jesus set us free, who uh, all of us who have lived their lives as slave to the fear of dying. So there was two reasons that only by dying himself could he could he break the devil's power. So the second reason was to to break the power, so that it was to liberate us. So so the first reason is identification. He wants to be one of us so that he can lead us, so that we can follow him voluntarily and not simply be picked up and carried across uh, into salvation. And the other reason is for liberation, so that we actually can do what we now want to do. And then he says this. He says, we also know the Son did not come to help the angels. 
and he came to he came to help the descendants of Abraham. This was a debate. He's already spent some time in this uh, uh, in chapter one talking about angels. This is not a big issue for us today. But how do you know Jesus didn't didn't come to save some aspect of creation? Well, a big clue is the fact he came as a human being. So he says he came to help the descendants of Abraham, and he says therefore it was necessary for him to be made like us in every respect. Uh, like us, his brothers and sisters, so he could be our merciful high priest, a merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. So he says, he came voluntarily. This is God's gracious act to save us. And that's, that's the reason, or that's, that's the piece of the reason we need to look at today, at least, um, from the, the book of Hebrews about why Jesus came. But if you're like me, you can read this and say, okay, I follow that. It makes sense. But it's kind of dry. And so the writer of Hebrews was inspired, but he wasn't Jesus. And so I think we can get a better feel for what Jesus did by turning to probably his most famous parable, the parable of the the lost sons. And I want to concentrate particularly on the elder son. You know the story. The, the, the younger son goes off into the far country and squanders his living, and uh, squanders his, his, uh, everything he has in loose living. And then he comes to his senses and returns home, hoping his father will make him a slave. His father rather greets him and uh, kills the fatted calf and has the party and everything else. And uh, that's the end of the young son, as far as we know. The, that's the end of his story. But then we pick up the story of the elder son, and the elder son refuses to come in. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, and he says that you never gave me a thing. I never, I never even got a goat to have a party with my friends. I slaved for you, and he says, when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. And Jesus told this parable because we can all understand. If we were the elder brother, we would probably do the same thing. We would feel pretty bent out of shape about dad killing the fatted calf for the younger brother. And Jesus knows his audience, and he knows that we would probably react that way. But I heard a sermon that really changed the way I read this passage by a a pastor named Tim Keller several years ago. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City. And he said, he said, you have to stop and think, this is the elder brother. The story would not be the same if you reversed the roles. Because the elder brother got a double portion. The way that the property inheritance laws worked in those days, you, you gave, uh, however many children would inherit, you gave an, an extra portion to the older brother. And the reason was because when dad was gone, he became the potter familias. He was responsible. If there were any un- unmarried daughters, if any of the, the sons had trouble, that he was the one they would turn to. And so he had extra resources to be able to do that. And he said, because of that, the elder brother's responsibility in that culture would have been, not that, not that this occurred, but everybody would have said, actually, you know, it's true. The elder brother's responsibility, when the younger son went astray, the elder brother's responsibility would have been to go to the far country himself, find his brother, and when he found him there in the pig pen, to say, brother, come home, dad wants you. I'll clean up the mess here. You just get going. That would have been his responsibility. But like all of us, none of us would have done that. We would have been the one standing outside the party saying, he doesn't deserve it. But we all have an elder brother. 
Jesus, who came to our pig pen and said exactly that. He said, come home. God wants you back home. I'll take care of this mess. You just get going. That is the invitation that Jesus makes to all of us. That is the the promise that he makes, that God wants us back. And so the theology of, of God the Son and, and God the 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 Holy Spirit and God the Father, the, the relationship of God the Son to Jesus Christ, it falls flat unless we realize this is the perfect elder brother, the one who came to us in our trouble and said, I will clean up the mess and send us home to our Father. So, what do we do with this? Well, it comes down to two things. How do you relate to Jesus? Do you see Jesus as a bother? Do you see Jesus as, as a judge, somebody who's just come to wreck your fun? Maybe you need to spend some more time in the pig pen. But the promise is that he has come into our pig pen to save us. The second question is, how do you relate to the other people that he calls his brothers and sisters? How do you relate to that person at work, that person across the dinner table? How do you relate, how do you relate to those people on TV, the ones, you know, agitating for that thing you hate? What do you think about the Republicans? Or the Democrats? What do you think about the gays and the straights? What do you think about the people that, frankly, you wouldn't have gone off to the far country to rescue, but Jesus did? This is the question for all of us. How do we relate to the people Jesus calls his brothers, and how do we relate to Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we were in the pig pen, Jesus did not ask, is that fair? But he humbled himself. He suffered. He became a human being to lead us back to glory and to set us free from the power of the devil. We give you thanks and praise. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us day by day to be more like our elder brother. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.